Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Before we get into my latest interview, I wanted to take just a quick moment to ask for your help. If you're a writer or a passionate reader and you find value in these podcast interviews with writers and authors, I would just ask that you share the podcast with two of your friends. Let them know about the many interviews available at the Reading and Writing Podcast. Thanks for your help and stay tuned for my interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is James Morgan Jones, author of the new novel, Eye of the Rushes, The Glasswater Quintet, Book Four. James, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your novel, Eye of the Rushes, how would you describe the novel? Well, as you've indicated, it's part of the quintet, and it's the fourth one, um, so one to go after this. Um, they are a series of novels, I think they're best described as psychological thrillers with a supernatural slant. Um, they are linked by location and character, but they don't occur sequentially. They take um, a sort of anti-clockwise trajectory and then round again so that they meet um, almost where they started. The first one takes place in about uh, 2000 somewhere. Then it goes back to uh, the 1970s when you meet some of the characters that were in the first novel when they were younger. And then back further still to the beginning of the Second World War. And then it goes forward into the 90s, which is where the uh, Eye of the Rushes are set. And then in the last novel, which is yet to to come into existence fully, um, which is called The Ice Chandelier, that uh, will take place a few years on from the first novel, so that it comes full circle and then some, just by a little bit. Um, And as I say, they are are, um, very much atmospheric, um, uh, dramatic, emotionally driven, I would say, and they do have quite a supernatural um, dimension to them, but I would stress it's not fantasy supernatural. It's very much of a psychological nature, haunting of the mind, that kind of thing. Right. Well, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing the Glasswater Quintet? Well, it started, the original one, which is called On the Edge of Wild Water, I was doing um, an MA course at the university here in West Wales. And, of course, as you probably know, at the end of these courses, you have to do a dissertation of roughly 20,000 words. And I held an idea um, for a novel, um, which I where I was going to use the location in which I live, which has very interesting history. Um, quite singular, actually, one particular uh, episode in its history. And so I decided I wanted to use that because literally on the patch where I live, some very um, important events at this time took place and they were, in fact, quite dramatic and and, and great for a novelist to use because they had some very um, almost theatrical uh, elements to them. So I decided I wanted to use that and came came up with an idea whereby there would be two time frames, the modern day and these almost hallucinatory lapses back into history. Uh, And uh, it was going to be a um, standalone novel at that point. So I wrote the first part of it, which was my 20,000 word dissertation. 
And then um, got, uh, got to the end of that, obviously, and submitted it. And then realized, of course, I had to finish it. So I went on and uh, this took about nine months after that. And I, I finished the novel. And then and it was almost rather deflating. It was trying to climax, actually, once you got to the end of it. And I, I then thought that it would be very interesting to take the characters further and develop uh, relationships and bring in, of course, other characters by, by this this um, process that I've already described in linking them by time and place and uh, in, a, in, a, in a more unusual way by going backwards and then forwards again and showing our lives into, into weave of the passage of time um, and so on. And so that, that's, that's really how it came into being. Um, and it, I used to use a, a, another location, which I also know very well and, and managed to weave because they're on separate sides of the UK. And so I managed to find a way that I could weave those two together in, in a credible way as well, and thereby bring in more characters um, whose lives touch one another. And sometimes the characters in, in, in a novel will be quite prominent in others. They may only have a glancing um, appearance, but... Um, it you know it, it creates I hope quite a rich texture in in in, in the in the passage of the quintet. Well, you mentioned this MA program. Um, were you writing before that? What was kind of your initial writing journey? Ah, right. Well, I actually started writing when I was about twelve, I suppose, twelve or thirteen, and I just suddenly took to writing stuff, which of course at that age was very derivative stuff based on often based on things I've been watching on television or books that I might have read, that sort of thing. Um, but I used to finish them. I did, I did, you know, I did have the discipline to actually at least finish them. Um, and then when I left school, I actually went to um, John's school in London. So that, although I was still writing my own stuff, and I did so while I was at John's school, that, of course, was such an all-consuming thing. It took over f- for quite a while. And so it was later, later on when I came back to writing after a series of events that um, made me, of course, me to have to change course in my life in terms of doing. Um, I then realised that I, I had to get back to writing seriously and so began again. And I, although I don't, I don't think you have to do a writing course, actually, by any means, it's helpful, I think, I found it helpful because it got me back into the discipline of writing and also provides a sort of environment where you can explore what you want to do, which of course until that point I had never really seriously done. And that was over 15 years ago, so uh, that's how I got to that point and I've been writing seriously ever since. Sure. And as you mentioned, this is a five book series. I'm curious, did you outline the series before you started writing book one? No, no, no. As I said, that uh, the, uh, the initially it was just that novel I was going to write, um, or at least, you know, the first right. part for my dissertation. And it was after I'd finished the first novel, then I had an idea as to how it could be expanded into a series. Um, and then the only thing I initially did was to work out which period each novel would be set in. That, you know, i.e. going from the first one, which was the 2000s, 1970s, beginning of the Second World War, 1990s, and then finally the 2010s, roughly. Um, and that was more or less the only thing I actually put, that was predetermined. 
Um, I then um, went where I, I, when I sat down to write a novel, I had a, a vague idea of each one, the central core, if you like, of the of the narrative or the plot, um, and um, so that I, I had at least a model to begin to work on. But I'm not somebody who literally works with a, a board, you know, and, and writes up every single detail before I even start. I, I actually can't do that. I find that quite impossible. So I begin and see where it goes. But I did know roughly, well, certainly where, what, what period each book would be set in and roughly the sort of narrative that I was heading for, but that was so are you working on the fifth book in the series now? Yes. I, I do other things, uh, other kinds of writing in between. I've, I've written short stories and poetry and just finished a play, actually. But now, yes, I am doing uh, working on the Ice Chandelier, which is, carries quite a lot of responsibility with it, I think, because I have to tie up, if you like, the fates of characters that you've <laughs> come to know throughout the whole of the other four, if anyone has read, of course, the whole series, they, they will want a satisfactory conclusion to characters that come and go at age and get younger and age again, that kind of thing. You need to know in a way how their, their, their fates, their stories are tied up. So that's going to be quite a tricky one um, uh, with a, a even more need to interweave quite a large cast because they do have each novel does have quite a few people in it um and so you really have to be on your toes in sort of a balancing act to to bring in all these people make sure that they're relevant and interesting um but not let one dominate too much whilst you know in case you lose the thread of of one of the others you know you, you it's a balancing act really to keep the all the ingredients up as sure well given your given your writing this five uh book quintet um what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels or even as you said a play right well <laughs> It sounds cliche, and it's probably something that people would have heard many times before, but you do have to just keep doing it. It doesn't literally necessarily have to be daily, in as much as I think sometimes everybody needs to take time off, but you, you can't be allowed to lapse. Otherwise, you will, what can happen is you then become frightened of, of beginning again because it all it seems such an enormous task that you take off so i would say so because i had other things to do as well when i was writing my during the course of each working day so uh, while i was writing sports and so what one thing i found really useful because it was manageable was to write um 500 words a day and um, it's even more helpful if you can allocate a particular time but that's simply because it helps your sense of routine and purpose. But that's not really necessary. But if, if you stick to 500 words, say, a day, which is not an enormous amount, but if you do do it every day, you will be surprised how quickly your work count um, you know, melts up and you, you, you can achieve quite a lot by that, that method. Um, but, and it also means you don't become too exhausted and uh, your energies are depleted, and you've also perhaps got a bit more time um, and another point in the day to revise what you've done. 
um, as you go along, which is the way I do it. Um, so that I, I, I'm pretty satisfied with the section before I move on to the next. So it, it just allows, you know, it makes it more possible without becoming too drained. So that's, uh, I would say that's a good technique to, to aim for because it's not too overwhelming, but it's also discipline, which means you're constantly moving forward, which is important. Sure. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I have read, I've become very fond of, I, I haven't read any very, very recently published novels of late, I have to admit. I tend to go back into the archives of either mm-hmm. one classical, um, for, you know, from, from the classical canon I'm, I'm currently reading, because I do enjoy well-written um, short stories. Um and she also, actually, this lady I'm about to mention does have, um, she's not all her stories by any means have supernatural tinge to them, but many of them do, but it's in very sophisticated, subtle ways. A lady who was an Irish writer called, um, Elizabeth Bowen. And it's of her short story that she wrote a lot of them. And they are such a joy to read because they are so exquisitely written. So at the moment I'm reading her. Before that, I read a relatively, um, I, there's a, a British writer, I don't know if, if your listeners will have heard of, called Beryl Bainbridge, who, of whom I, I'm very fond. And she, in the last part of her career, she died not that long ago, but uh, in the last part of her career, she took to writing historical reconstructions, but with a very idiosyncratic way. Uh, the first one I think she did was her take on Captain Scott's inflated trip. Um, and, you know, the fact that you, of course, you know what happens to them, but she does it in such a singular way that it's absolutely gripping. And none of her books are very long. It's, it's an amazing achievement how she does it. But my favourite one is a, a book called Every Man for Himself, which I read not that long ago. Um, which is actually a reconstruction of the events surrounding the Titanic, the sinking of the Titanic. And of course, everybody knows about the Titanic. Much has been written about it. There's been, there was the very, well, several films, but of course there was the blockbuster film in the 90s. Uh, but her genius was that she does it in such an extraordinary, singular way that you're absolutely gripped and it's almost like reading the story for the first time. Um, and also, she manages to convey this extraordinary sense of not just the ship sailing towards disaster, but a whole era that coming to the end of, of the Edwardian era just before the First World War. Um, somehow, she conveys this feeling of disaster looming and not just the ship. It's a fascinating book. I would recommend it to anyone who's listening. It's called Every Man for Himself by Beryl Bainbridge. Um, and I, I, I like her very much. I like her work. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your Glasswater Quintet novels? Well, the best place to go, actually, I would say, is my website, which is, is quite straightforward. It's all one word. It's jamesmorganjones.co.uk. On there, you will see... Uh, well, pretty well, even if there's some biography and also uh, information about all the different books, there is, you'll see there's a Facebook, you can go onto my Facebook um, page as well. If you scroll down, you'll see there's, get onto that. Um, also, there's a facility where you can, if you sign up for a newsletter, you can get, have access to two short stories and a first part of, on 
on the edge of wild water, which is the first book in the quintet. You get those um, free access to those. Um, and so uh, you just need to look on the page and then there's a link to do that on every page. Um, so website is actually the best place to go if people do want to find out more about. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with James Morgan Jones, author of the new novel, Eye of the Rushes, The Glasswater Quintet, book four. The novels are on sale now, as we've discussed. So buy, go buy a copy. And James, thanks for doing this interview. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for asking me. Wonderful. Now stay tuned as James Morgan Jones reads from his novel, On the Edge of Wild Water, the first book in the Glasswater Quintet. From On the Edge of Wild Water by James Morgan Jones. Chapter 10, Moon Rider. Bethan woke to the sound of owls. The room was powdered in silver. The journal lay still open on her chest. It slipped to the floor as she moved. She picked it up and placed it on the table by the bed. The room was under the eaves, with a window at floor level. She kneeled down. Everything was still and silent. Peering up at an angle, she could see the dish of the moon high and white in the sky. She realized she was thirsty. She went down to the old scullery, not wanting any sound from the kitchen to wake her parents. The air was very warm. She drank straight from the tap and splashed some of the water on her face. There was a sweet night scent she had not noticed before, from the wood, beyond the stream. She wanted to go outside. She slipped on some shoes and, very quietly, unbolted the back door. Silver light spangled the stream. From the steep bank an old oak tree leaned, stretching its branches across the water as if trying to reach the house. She took in the heavy, sweet scent again, and she could see pale flowers twining through the oak's leaves. The plangent call of the owls pierced the night air. She wandered out and stood by the road. Another cry, very near. She drifted across the road, peering into the dark mass of hedge. The heady scent washed over her again. In the hedge, she could see curling tongues of the same flower she had seen in the oak tree. They had a greenish-white glow, twisting through dense hazel and ash. She had an image in her head of milk running through her cupped hands and thought of her flower book lying on her bedside table. No time to turn back now. Just then, the owl cried out in alarm, Kiwit! Kiwit! And from the hedge, a dark shape rose clumsily. She felt the swoop of its wings brush her hair and instinctively turned and ducked to avoid it, closing her eyes. When she opened them again, she was facing the house, but it was not the one she knew, and under her feet was dry, warm earth. She stared at the cottage. Its walls were of old lime-washed stone, 
uncovered by the honey-coloured render of her grandmother's house. From its thatched roof, a chimney poked, and she could just catch the pungent, sooty smell of smoke on the air. The tight straw roof came down in a low fringe onto the walls, and moonlight glistened in the panes at two tiny windows below it. Over the low door were the shadows of bell and lamps. Before and behind her the earthen road stretched. She started to walk towards the cottage, mesmerised. Where were her mother and father? She would look through the windows, rap on the door, ring the bell and summon someone to help her. The call of the owl came again, behind her. She turned, then from somewhere beyond the curve in the road she heard a horn blowing. Someone shouted. She started quickly along the road. She would find whoever it was, demand an explanation. She was intoxicated by the heavy scent of the flowers. As she strode along, she saw in her mind's eye the sign at the pub where she had sat the afternoon before. It was swinging in the wind and a voice was whispering a cathedral green. Then she froze. She stood listening. From out of the silent expanse of night, she heard the sound of galloping hooves. She turned again. Beyond the cottage, the road wound down into the cleft of the valley. The sound of the hooves grew louder, thundering down the narrow pass towards her. She stood unable to move. It seemed to Bethan that she saw the white mare before it rounded the bend in the road with its rider, that she knew it. It pounded towards her with furious energy as she stood transfixed by the side of the road. In the glare of moonshine, she saw the figure astride the horse for a second, hair in ringlets bouncing crazily to the powerful motion of the mare's flight, a strange squarish hat slipping to one side. The horse was almost upon her. It reared up with a shriek as the rider yanked back the reins. She tumbled into the grass verge and looked up at the massive chest of the horse. It rose onto its hind legs, its nostrils glaring in terror. She saw enormous, heavy boots in the stirrups, and above them, thick, trousered legs under heavy skirts. As her head fell back into the shadow of the ditch, she stared straight into the face of the rider. It was a black, featureless shadow except for two eyes which shone white with the remorseless cold of the moon. Bethan covered her head with her arms and tried to roll further into the ditch. Blackness filled her mind. Then, a voice. Are you all right? I swear I didn't hit you. Are you all right? For Christ's sake. Slowly she came to. She pulled her arms from around her head and tried to roll over. Are you hurt? Jesus, what the hell were you doing out here at this time of night? Are you okay? She finally turned over and looked into the panic-stricken face of a man. Behind him was a car. It had swerved into the verge. One wheel touched the rim of the ditch. I just didn't see you. Shall I call an ambulance? C can you get up? She found it difficult to speak. She had to retrieve her voice from some other place. I'm not hurt, she whispered, and pushed herself up onto her knees. The man leaned forward to help her, but she recoiled and staggered to her feet. She stood shakily. I'm all right, she said. 
she realized that she had wandered some way from the house. She was frightened, wanting to be back, to hide herself away. I'm all right, she said again. I'm going home, please don't tell anyone. She started to move, then looked back. I'm sorry, she said to the man who stood with trembling face at the roadside. Please don't tell anyone. I'm sorry. She ran unsteadily up the road to the house, like a pale moth. She stood by the water. Nausea welled up in her. She lurched forward and retched violently. Lifting her face, she took deep breaths. She was purged under the moon. She crept back to her room and lay down. When the gnaw of acid in her stomach subsided, she slept again. And then, deep in her mind, a membrane quivered and ruptured into life. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.